and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. Joining me, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter this week, we have... Tyrion, uh, at Tyrion Wilson on Twitter. Eugenie, at MemesTD on Twitter. And Joe, at SteamTams on Twitter. At time of recording, it hasn't been that long since the second hustings for the Tory leadership contest took place. For the purposes of today's podcast, let's imagine that we are Tory MPs voting for our new leader. I'll be... I don't know. I'll be Marc Francois. Uh, you guys can sort amongst yourselves who you are. Um, Good what... lord. Do I have to? Terrible choice. <laughs> I, I, I feel like as the only proponent of anarcho-gorkism in the world, I think I'm just going to have to go with David Gork uh, for David mine. Gork. Yeah. David Gork. I think I'm here to embody the spirit of um, Esther McVeigh, you know, just bring some Esther raw, malevolent energy to the podcast. I mean, if we got Marc Francois, who presumably this means Jasper's going to talk about the Teutons and, I don't know, the Norman <laughs> yoke for two hours. Um, I already want to leave. How horrible she is, you know. Let's, let's, let's raise the caliber here, guys. Joe, who, 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 which Tory MP are you? Given we appear to be going for the most horrifying, I'll go for... Oi! <laughs> <laughs> I'll go uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, I reckon. So, we are a group of Tory MPs voting for our new leader today. What do our votes indicate that we want out of a 21st century Conservative Party and a 21st century Conservatism? Um, And, you know, is what we want necessarily the same as what the party needs to be? Um, Tyrion slash David Gork MP... (laughs) Uh, what do you think about this? Well, at the moment, I think what the votes would probably show is that uh, what we want is to be destroyed. Um, uh, at the moment, um, all of the candidates, with the exception of Rory Stewart, um, seem to be working on the line that, oh, actually, what we'll do is um, uh, we'll, we'll definitely leave on October 31st, or we'll leave um, with a deal that sees us removing the backstop. They're all holding very uh, manfully to this line uh, at the moment in public. Even though it's complete nonsense, uh, as uh, generally understood on the EU side, anyway. Um, uh, but th- they essentially seem to be going with the idea that Boris Johnson is kind of the most sort of um, determined way of getting voters back from the Brexit party that they see as theirs, um, that have been behind their recent collapse in the polls to the worst position uh, ever for the Tories um, in, the, in their history. Um, so I, I think uh, they're almost not really looking that grandly in terms of the future of conservatism and, and, and how it stands in the 21st century. They're just looking for something that desperately gets their voters back. And um, But in the long term, I'm not really sure that it works. So they're kind of caught in a bit of a catch-22 there. I'm sure Esther McVeigh was thrilled that Boris Johnson is going to become prime minister, but, you know, sad that another purveyor of deep malevolent energy, Dominic Raab, has been uh, has been eliminated. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 really my, uh, my uh, the way I analyze and look at all of them you know who has like the well, worst who is energy the deepest force <laughs> exactly who when you look into their eyes do you see a swirling pit of the abyss um obviously i obviously i picked um estimate vay but maybe pretty patel would have been like the culmination of all oh, that but... yeah. <laughs> anyway I think, I think dominic Raab definitely has the deepest dark energy <laughs> out of all the candidates as jacob i'm sure i'm pretty pleased that boris is on course to win as joe i'm horrified um yeah, I, I don't know. I think I basically agree with a lot of what Tyrion said. I don't think they are thinking about this in any sort of depth. I think um, there's an extent to which it's just sort of um, 
Well, I guess at any point in a Tory leadership contest, at a certain point, the momentum, once the momentum's obviously going somewhere, everyone's just trying to uh, protect their positions in an upcoming cabinet and things. So, um, yeah, I don't think there's a, a great depth of analysis from uh, Tory MPs about their choice of leader so far. I'm interested in the way that the votes for the non-Johnson candidates have kind of allocated and who gained and who didn't. Um, it's... Uh, I wonder what everyone else here thinks, but Hunt only winning three more, is that potentially something that's going to put a scupper on his reasonably um, confirmed position as, you know, the not Boris candidate who will probably get to the um, to the the final round and be put to the membership? Or is the image of Hunt as the kind of safe pair of hands, non-Boris candidate, is, is that an invention of the lobby? I'd say I kind of agree a lot with your views on Hunt. Um, I think he feels very much like the sort of person who would be the uh, agreed kind of anti-Johnson candidate if he were a lot stronger than he is now. But because it's so close between him and Stuart, I kind of feel a lot more of the kind of people who'd be inclined to support either and will go, well, Stuart's uh, obviously the one that's got a lot more kind of to him, whereas Hunt's just very... I mean, he's just like porridge, really. He's just a, a bit of a porridge candidate. It's like, fine, okay, that, that, uh, I'm eating something. I agree with this sentiment. <laughs> Tying this back into the wider leadership results, um, every single candidate at the debate was talking about how we need they need to stem the votes um, to the Brexit party and beat back Farage and that kind of thing. Um, but I really don't think that that should be their priority. Like, I understand kind of why it present, presents this existential threat to them. Um, but all the talk of like electoral pacts with the Brexit Party is ludicrous. They don't have any MPs. They haven't only existed for a couple of months. Um, and, you know, you just need to look at this in like mathematical terms. The number of voters who will go to the Liberal Democrats, to Labour, to the SNP, to the Greens, and also to Change UK, maybe. <laughs> If Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister is significantly higher than the number of votes that will go to the Brexit party if Rory Stewart becomes Prime Minister um, or insert other Remain-ish candidate here. I feel like uh, Change UK might not be their threat, <laughs> but, but the point, point definitely taken on the others. Um, I think one thing that I, I think my view on it in terms of how they are fated electorally. I think um, one thing that Jeremy Hunt, to his credit, has actually got right, um, I think he was the one that said this a couple of weeks ago, is that very much the Conservative Party is absolutely going to be brutalised if it goes into a general election without having sorted Brexit. So is this a Tory problem, do we think, or is it a Brexit problem? Because the problem that they're facing in government is that regardless of which way they swing, they're going to alienate about half of the electorate. But that problem doesn't go away if Labour get into government, for example. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that these arithmetic problems within the House of Commons are going to disappear um, if the Tories go. I think there definitely is a Brexit problem, but I think... Um... It's a little. It, I think it's asymmetrical. So I think um, because there are so many more Leavers voting for the Tories than there are for Labour, and because there are so many more Remainers voting for Labour than there are for the Tories, um, I think there are very much preferences um, between those two parties for what is a better outcome in terms of things they're being seen to deliver. And I think at the moment, because the Tories are the ones that are in government, they are in so much more danger. Um, from Brexit than Labour are. Labour, ultimately, I think if it gets a position that is satisfactory enough to uh, most Remainers, can make it through the next election 
um, generally kind of saving its bacon, whereas I think the Tories have a lot of huge risks going into the next election. You know, the fact that during a whole third term, their only policy success has been to ban plastic straws. And, you know, most uh, third term governments don't do particularly well in the next election after that anyway, with better records than that. Uh, the fact that the one thing that they would be campaigning on, let's deliver Brexit. Well, that was what they campaigned on last time. It didn't get them a majority. And uh, since then, there have been three years of very, two, three years of very solid evidence that they can't deliver Brexit, um, which is going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, so I think it's a very, uh, while there is a general Brexit problem in terms of how much damage can be done to both of the main parties, I think it's much, much more acute for the Tories at the moment. And uh, what does the Johnson government offer apart from Brexit plus tax cuts? They were talking about this on um, Talking Politics last week in a very interesting discussion about the kind of depth of Boris Johnson. And it's saying, well, all he's offering is something that's uh, kind of a small, concise package. And obviously, but yeah, it's a concise package that encompasses like the two, uh, well, uh, Brexit, you know, the, the greatest constitutional issue um, of our age and also tax cuts, which Tories like, but, you know, and the kind of conventional wisdom is that people like, but having had uh, nine, nine years of austerity now, you know, where's the enthusiasm for that outside of the remit of conservative levers or kind of right-wing levers um i'd be i'm I'm unsure but i i think certainly you know to move back to our hypothetical about uh us all as tory mps thinking about who we're going to vote for i almost feel like the meme of johnson as a figure of someone with universal popularity and a way to speak out and reach other people um is not is not something that maybe that will have the cut through that they think it will have. Certainly, you know, this isn't a London mayoral election. This is the, you know, it's the government of the United Kingdom. And it's about people's lives and their experiences with to- the Tories in government for almost a decade. There is the Brexit problem, but it also speaks to the, um, to plug this, the last episode of this podcast, what Alex Sobel was talking about in his interview with William about um, the sort of dearth of any sort of, new ideas coming from the Conservative Party. So I think it does, uh, so I, I do think there is a both a Tory problem and a Brexit problem here. I think you, you see it when you think about what new policies have been put forward during this contest. And as Eugenie said, it's what tax cuts and um, I guess national service from um, Roy Stewart. But but it's there's, there's, not, there's not a lot going on there. And I think, and, and part of that's, because Brexit is all-consuming, but also, but what, but what else are they saying? Um, and I think that's that's going to be a difficult e for them. One thing that I'd be quite interested to know everyone else's views on, uh, to go back to our brief thought experiment that we're all Tory MPs. Who do we genuinely think, out of all the candidates, would be the one that would be best for the Conservative Party at the next general election? Because I think there's a almost a kind of common assumption in the media at the moment that it would definitely be and obviously be Rory Stewart. And I wonder if that's something that we all definitely agree on as well. Probably Rory Stewart or Sajid Javid. So Matthew Goodwin, and I know Matthew Goodwin, uh, has just published a report on, <laughs> on 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 voting in the EU elections. I haven't had time to read it in full yet. I've just read the tweets. But um, basically it finds that uh, the Lib Dems hit the Tories harder in terms of vote share than the Brexit party did. Um, and if you look at the overall gains and losses in comparison to 2014, um, the Conservatives lost around 15.6%, which is much more than the Brexit party gained of 8.5%. Um, it's like I was saying earlier, there's a misplaced assumption that the Brexit party is the real threat. 
in reality, there are more parties, more political parties who are not Brexity. There are more people voting for those parties who are not hard Brexity. And a Boris Johnson government put all of them off voting Conservative. I think I'd probably go for Sajid Javid, actually. I agree. Weirdly enough, because I think to, to look also particularly at the European Parliament results, um, the one thing that they found was really interesting about where the Brexit party won and lost votes compared with the Leave referendum is that, well, obviously it did well in a lot of the big kind of white working class areas and a lot of the very traditionally Leavey areas, uh, a lot of the places where it most fell back compared with the 2016 referendum was a lot of the places like Birmingham um, that had a lot more kind of um, ethnic minority voters who uh, came out and voted for Leave, who were targeted by the Vote Leave campaign on with a kind of quite cynical sort of, oh, if we uh, aren't in the EU anymore, we can have more immigration from Commonwealth countries, which obviously the Brexit party didn't really have that kind of vibe, that it was quite open to that sort of immigration either. And I think Sajid Javid would actually probably be the Tories' best hope of, one, getting in those kinds of voters, but two, kind of almost repeating the kind of John Major trick um, that the Tories managed in 1992 of, well, you know, what does the Tory party offer uh, working class? kid from Brixton, well, we made him Prime Minister. Um, and I think kind of he would be the best at offering a sort of fresh face. Oh, I didn't quite expect that from the Tories um, compared to the others. And pleasingly, as a Labour supporter, uh, it looks like the Tories are about to uh, turn down that opportunity. Uh, but in my with my David Gore cat on, I, I'm, I'm naturally devastated. I would, I would agree with Tehran 100% because I, I would say that actually, if you think about the Conservative vote share that was winning them a majority in 2015, the Tories do have to win back a certain level of the kind of um, maybe conservative leaning ethnic minorities in major cities. It's about winning back also places like Bath um, and you know other kind of small provincial cities where maybe they're going to vote for a, a one nation Tory government, quote unquote. Um, so Cameron w- was someone who was quite appealing to them. But, you know, Theresa May and all her baggage and her Brexit and her go home vans and you know that's the kind of level of conservatism and a character and a figurehead of a government which they naturally don't respond to I speak from um, personal experience having grown up uh, was spending a period of time growing up in Bath and um, as a kind of con lib flip seat basically um, you can see that potentially Sajid Javid is a figure there that would might potentially have a broader appeal and i can see javid having uh, a broader or a broader appeal also with his brexit credentials the theme we keep coming back to is that the conservatives are not voting the way that they should be going with regards to their electoral coalition with regards to winning the next general election and also within regards to ideologically what the party is going to have to represent in the 21st century isn't it brilliant <laughs> joining us this week for our interview is callum o'dwyer who was a scottish labour mep candidate for scotland at the last set of european elections a couple of weeks ago and also an mp candidate for aberdeen south at the 2017 general election callum hello thank you so much for coming on uh, hello. Hi. Um, yeah, and my um, Twitter handle is uh, Callum J O'Dwyer uh, on on Twitter. Uh, Callum O'Dwyer was taken a few years ago. So, as someone who was both an MEP candidate and an MP candidate, um, how would you describe the experience? Um, was it overall good? Overall stressful? Overall uh, 
Can't think of any other words. Anxiety inducing? <laughs> promising? I don't know. As much as, uh, particularly from a Scottish Labour perspective, it wasn't um, the most uh, auspicious campaign, really, uh, <laughs> as, as far as, 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 it, as it went. Um, it, it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, for from a, from a candidate's perspective, um, being one of six candidates uh, on 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 the list, um, meant that I had had a lot of I, I, you know I, I could pick up and campaign anywhere, um, anywhere in Scotland, anywhere where people were 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 starting you know their their campaigns, I, I could I could come along, which meant I got to campaign in uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh for the first time. Um, I'm sort of I'm based up in Aberdeen, and um, I, I I very much kind of silo myself up here in terms of my organization um so that was a great experience that 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 was really really good and it, therefore i got to see a much broader range of um of, of voters of of attitudes and, and that sort of stuff which made me realize how uh, unique uh, aberdeen's political uh, sensibilities are um but also it it made me um it it, it, it was a lot of fun like i i, I was able to Spend a bit of time in a quote-unquote battle bus, um, which was a very um, nausea-inducing minibus. But you know, it, it, it's <laughs> from a candidate's perspective, it was great. I felt very, very uh, active. I felt everything I was doing was was helping. Um, although you know, <laughs> the, the actual campaign and the result was devastating. There's there's, there's no other way to put it, and um, and. It, during the campaign, you know, and, 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 and you, you, you're hitting the doors and you're, and you're going out with people and you're hearing the same stuff coming back and you know your message isn't really working. You know, it's all bouncing back off, you know, back onto you. And um, it, it can be quite disheartening, but from just like a pure candidate perspective, it was, it was, it was, it was a very uh, positive campaign. My, my other fellow candidates were brilliant as well. And, and, and the Scottish Labour staff and everything fantastic. Um, but, you know, it, it, it at times very difficult so with regards to those larger constituencies and you said you got to visit all sorts of different people wherever in scotland you saw that as a benefit rather than a hindrance because my my kind of perspective of bigger constituencies has always been that they are a negative because you can lose a local link or, or just like you know the danger is when you go too big you lose sight of too many people that kind of thing but but from your experience that wasn't the case so so with my experience of being a, a candidate in 2017 when you have your constituency you have your uh your patch and you work it very very hard i think that's a very effective way of engaging people um but it does mean that you 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 you, you can find yourself Speaking to the same people over and over again, and 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 the the variety isn't necessarily the same as you know the idea that you could you know drive three hours, hop out your car, and then join a campaign team and go. And the, the, there was something quite exciting about that, which I liked. And um, but definitely, it is harder in the European election campaign to engage with voters purely by the fact that you've only got six candidates and not well, in the case of Scotland, uh, fifty nine. Um, to, 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 to actually get out and engage people. Dare I ask her which was more fun to campaign in out of Glasgow and Edinburgh? <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to start a Scottish civil war. Um, and, and actually, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, I, I kind of have a theory that a lot of people can be split into either Glasgow or Edinburgh people. Um, and, and I've always considered myself an Edinburgh person having lived there for f- five years. But actually, Glasgow was a lot more fun. Um, just that kind of, Jocular banter was uh, w- w- was great. 
and another one kind of out of interest. So what, what do you think the main thing that went wrong for... Uh, the, uh, actually, I mean, in, just in general, what do you think the main difficulties that Scottish Labour are facing at the moment? And uh, if it isn't uh, kind of presuming too much to uh, ask the question, what can be done right to get Scottish Labour back in the game? I, I mean, <laughs> I, I was kind of anticipating this answer before I was thinking about today, and my answer kind of started back in 2007. Uh, so I'll... <laughs> good place, good place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I mean... The, the 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 long and the short of it is that we the 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 Labour Party and this goes for everywhere. We want to talk about economics. We want to talk about social justice. We want to talk about inequalities, and and it's 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 an anathema really to to the things that we want to talk about is to end up bogged in down in constitutional matters. And in Scotland, increasingly the the you know the the axis has been since two thousand thirteen, if not a little bit before that, has become, you know, yes and no, you know, support for independence or or support for remaining in the United Kingdom. And that was an axis that we just about got a hold of by the time of 2016. Um, and then the European election has kind of thrown everything up in the air again in terms of upsetting the, the apple cart a little bit when it comes to just, you know, it, it's like we have this one constitutional axis and now we've put on this other one and and but we still want to be talking about inequalities and and and, and economics and the, the the lesson that we had from 2014 to 2016 was the the the, the actions that we the, the the some of the choices that we made during the uh, independence referendum and um the and and, and following that Meant it did make a lot of sense for us to be a, a strongly uh, strong no party, a strong supporter for for Scotland remaining uh, in in the United Kingdom. Um, but since the EU referendum, we've kind of not been able to find or articulate a, a message, um, which has been able to sound credible on 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 Europe. Um, and the thing is, the, the the longer these constitutional issues are at the forefront, um. The, the the further away the issues we actually want to talk about, like inequality, like ownership, like social justice, um, fall massively down the agenda. It feels like we, we can't get a say. It feels like we're losing oxygen uh, on, on, on these issues. But I kind of think you have to grapple them head on and try to resolve them through democratic means. And then from then on, you can actually talk about the stuff that you you you, you, you do really think will transform people's lives. So that kind of ties in with a question that I wanted to ask about why you wanted to become an MP, an MEP in the first place. Um, was it was it something you've always wanted um, or was it simply a case of like um, both sets of elections came across rather unexpectedly um, and you thought, actually, I'd quite like to give this a go? I, I really started getting involved with the Labour Party after 2015, um, especially in Scotland where, you know, we had that tsunami of uh, Labour MPs kind of washed away and I I felt a responsibility that I um, felt I aligned with the values of a lot of these Labour MPs who who, who lost their seats I, I, you know I, I was a, I was a very lay member of the Labour Party um, and I, I felt a responsibility that I wanted to get involved, that I wanted to to to, to go ahead and do it uh, to help get people elected again and change the party. Um, and basically, because of 
kind of where I am. I, I, I've started a lot of my organizing organizing out in Aberdeenshire, um, where there are uh, it's 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 a it's a tough patch to plow. Um, but it therefore has meant that I was able to kind of get involved and take on lots of responsibility and roles that I otherwise might not have done in other places. And um, there was a snap general election uh, in 2017. Um, there was a kind of a feeling with a lot of people that um, this was an election we were going to lose. Um, and I was told when I put myself forward for this by one activist in Aberdeen that I would lose my deposit and uh, still I got 20 percent uh, thank you very much um <laughs> I, I I kind of felt like well if I, I might as well put myself forward that you know if people don't want that then I'll be able to get kind of you know knocked back in selection or whatever but especially with what happened with, with Scottish Labour in 2015 that y- 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 I kind of had to go had I had to do more like I couldn't just like sit back and retweet you know, I had to sort of get involved with stuff and it just so happened that it happened, you know, at certain points in my life, I was in a good position to sort of go for it and um, and, and I went ahead and did it. To kind of go back a little bit um, to the kind of position that Scottish Labour has been caught in, uh, both by the independence referendum and the EU referendum in general, uh, I wonder whether you thought it might be possibly a kind of instructional warning as to what could happen to the National Labour Party if it ends up caught between two stools on the EU referendum question at the next general election. Oh god yeah yeah oh no it keeps keeps me awake awake. <laughs> that very um, stark kind of answer there yeah <laughs> yeah the, the the polarization in uh, on, on politics along that kind of axis of of constitutional means and 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 people kind of um is is a kind of a nightmare situation for the Labour Party, I think, um, and and I, I understand as well that that kind of some of the choices that the leader of the opposition's office has made so far has been done to try and stem that that um, polarization. Um, I kind of think at this point it might be inevitable, um, and I think that if only because of my experience from from campaigning that increasingly people don't have a grey zone in the middle of their you know Brexit priorities. They're so um, disillusioned with the whole process um, from from when Theresa May has been prime minister that they don't think a compromise or or a middle way forward is is actually possible or feasible, um, and and therefore people are, are being driven more and more to. You know, like th- through their frustration, they're being driven back into remain and leave to no deal and, well, what might eventually become revoke. Political parties can shape the, the, the political discourse around them and, and they can be very, very strong players in that. Um, but they can still be swept away by tides and um, beyond their control. And I, I, I speak, you know, like the, the Labour Party has gone from being the single most dominant political force to, um, a very difficult position um, within 20 years or so. Um, I think that 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 is a sign for the National Party about what can happen if this goes wrong and people can't can't resolve this properly. And in terms of the SNP, so look from the outside looking at Scotland with as quite a low information um, uh, person on on Scotland. Um, do you see do you see um, any vulnerable abilities um that the SNP have because t- to me they just seem seem so dominant do, do you see there being being weaknesses that that labor can find a bit of joy with them or or is it just or is everything just so swept up with these constitutional questions that that it's almost irrelevant well well um, I'll, I'll um give you a good example of 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 where I found this it was I was speaking to um woman, woman on the doorstep who 
I mean, you, you, the fact we were having these conversations at all shows that we 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 weren't in a good spot for this for this election campaign whatsoever. But I, I, I was speaking to a woman who's a lifelong Labour voter who was who was really unhappy with um, our, our position on Brexit specifically, but on, on a few other bits and pieces. And she, and she said to me as well that she had been a nurse, but she didn't like where the NHS had, had been going in Scotland in terms of uh, her, her working hours. Um, and she she had started working as a classroom assistant. Um, but in both places, she just felt the 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 the, the drabness and the way that the public realm had been run down. And she said, so therefore, I think I'm going to vote SNP. And I sort of said, who's running the schools and the hospitals in Scotland? It is the SNP. And and she almost like did like a double take and was like, oh yeah, no, yeah, you're right. Like the the the, the a lot of the pressures and the strains of um of of the of public services um are being felt in Scotland um as 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 much as anywhere else. And in 2017, in the general election, um a much more positive election for Scottish Labour. And um, people were telling me on the doorstep things like. I've been waiting 18 weeks for for this appointment. I've been I've been waiting for this, you know, like, and and they were connecting with, um, you know, like if you vote Labour, um, you you'll be putting representatives who want to invest in that, and and that you know that 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 wasn't just in the seat that I was standing in Aberdeen South, which was you know a, a Labour Tory SNP kind of fight, and but in Aberdeen North, which was a straight. SNP labour fight and pe- people knew that our party when it comes to public services and in terms of investing in the public realm and investing in people is still the best bet but you know strangely that 2017 general election um, the constitutional issues kind of swept away a little bit you know we, we had people who had voted SNP previously coming back to us because they, they liked the manifesto they liked the positive message that I was bringing forward you had people who were voting for us because um, we, we were a party that wanted to, to remain within the UK and, and, and had strong support for that um, and and you know the, the, in, in, in many ways that election was kind of the, the the sweet spot we've had best in terms of our constitutional matters, and of course, you know, it, it meant that we went from one to to seven MPs in, in Scotland, which is a long way off what I'd like to see. But you know, it was it was a good start, and and the SNP really thought they're on the back foot then. But in the two years since, they've been able to make hay of um, of the EU referendum and the ongoing crisis around Brexit. It's it, there's a lot that um, Scottish Labour could have done to get on the front foot in terms of that, and not even in terms of. Um, you know, to, like of of promising a second referendum, you know, way back in 2017, which I think wouldn't have been the right time for it. But you know, we could have been looking more at options of single single market and, and customs union membership. We could have been looking at options that were more, you know, like, like soft Brexit, but like definitely showed a direction of like you know good European integration. But in, instead, we kind of started talking about the things that we always do want to talk about, and not the things that are going to that the people really are worried about we were talking earlier about the tory leadership contest um how do you think the contest is going do you think any of the candidates you know if you put on the hat of a tory mp be whichever tory mp you want we all chose ours um uh do you think any of the candidates are proposing ideas which are rekindling conservatism in the 21st century or does it appear to be a kind of um dearth of ideas oh it's shocking is it Oh, honest to God! Uh, it, it, <laughs> oh my goodness! It, 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 I was going to say it's it's like bald men trying to fight over a comb, but it's not. 
That's not fair to Savage either. Um, <laughs> in terms of the renewal of conservatism, I think it isn't that so much as the um, Brexitification of the Conservative Party. That you know, almost kind of from the inside out, this rot has spread. That um, the Conservatives will be quite happy becoming the Brexit Party with um, you know with more members. Um, or less members, actually, if you <laughs> count the supporter scheme. But the the it, 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 and like the figures which came out from that YouGov poll that you know the sixty uh, three uh, I think percent of Tory members would be happy to see Scottish independence um, rather than um, than than not have Brexit is you know it, it, the the Tories are not <laughs> supporters of the United Kingdom and um, the, the the only part of that is 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 Labour um, and <laughs> it, it, it's horrifying really to, to sort of see it happening this this you know this 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 party calcifying before your eyes but it's you know arguably uh you know from from the one uh, vampire bite of of Thatcherism all the way to here is is, is a continuous line so although actually that's quite an interesting one do you see that uh, actually maybe having consequences um, for Ruth Davidson, the, not only the, the members' poll, but just the general Brexitification of, um, of the Tory party? Oh, definitely. She uh, is in a very difficult position going forward um, for a number of factors. One is that the Scottish Tory MPs are not voting in any kind of coherent way. Um, the idea that they would kind of form one cohesive block, especially on constitutional issues, um, is for the birds. Um, and, and therefore her attempts to try and whip or guide those MPs into any sort of, um, to anything that would be approaching her political aims is, is, is very difficult for her now. Um, she, she's also now looking down the barrel of, of being the Scottish leader to a, British Prime Minister, and um, who she point blank has has been, you know, has, has banned from con- her conferences before. Boris poses a huge risk to her credibility and to her ability to project politically going forward. Um, this wasn't always the case. She did still perform quite well under Theresa May um, after Brexit, um, and and go and, and with that, and they've kind of become the Scottish Leave Party um, already, um, which has been semi-successful for them, especially in the northeast of Scotland. Um, but no, no, R- Ruth is in a very difficult position if, if Boris does does win. If you had any advice to um, anyone who wanted to stand as a candidate, uh, what would it be? I would say make sure you've got a good team when it comes to the selection um, and and trying to uh, appeal to, to members. Um, and... If you have a good team around you, you'll always have the support that you need. Um, and that goes as well for if you do get selected and, and go forward to, to be a candidate, um, the, the the campaign will have lots of ups and downs. Um, and this is particularly kind of pertinent for myself because um, during some sections of the campaign, especially in 2017, um, due to um, the scrutiny I was experiencing and kind of what it feels like to be in that spotlight for the first time, what it's like to sort of see your name and face in a paper, but um, that kind of glare and um, there's a few sort of local political issues became very national political issues at that time. And I felt very alone. Um, and um, I've, I've been quite open about the fact that I've uh, had various sort of mental health issues uh, in, in my life. And, and that point was a real low one for me. And um, a few days before the 2017 
actual election, um, I couldn't leave my bed for two days. Um, and 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 the <laughs> I, I the had I had a sort of stronger support network um, and I kind of, and if I let people in a bit more and if I sort of let myself be supported and um, I think it couldn't, it wouldn't necessarily have been as bad. Um, but that's kind of me and, 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 and the negative bit of that story. Um, honestly, running as a candidate both times has been one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Um, and, 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 if not only also because as a candidate and um, people treat you differently and um, if you knock on someone's door they'll come out and shake your hand uh, which if you're a garden variety uh, canvasser doesn't always happen and um, people are interested to not only hear what you say but to tell you sometimes very intimate and very personal details of their life they wouldn't tell their loved ones that it's an honor to even stand to want to serve those people and, and to also put your ideas out there to actually test your politics on the doorstep and is an amazing form of, of, uh, of democracy. It's, it's politics in its purest form. And if you even potentially kind of thinking about doing it, I, I, I cannot recommend it more. And, 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 and if you have that support network, if you have that team around you, um, then, then it, it, it will be one of, my, one of the best things you'll ever do. As per usual, we've been asking for your questions on Twitter and you have sent in an absurd number of good questions such as how long should I cook a boiled egg for to get a perfectly runny consistency from Ryan Smith? Um, I don't know, Ryan. I scrambled my eggs. Sorry. Hashtag not sorry. Um, how can socialism be defeated from Roders? Fire. We also had some actual good questions such as from Julia, one of our writers and editors. Um, which Labour leader was the cutest and more pressing is there a future for first-past-the-post politics? Oh, God, is it Blair by default? I really hope it isn't Blair by default. Ed Miliband is cute, but, like, I wouldn't have sex with him. I'd probably have sex with Tony Blair. I mean, I'm very much all about, you know, the Crossland Jenkins shipping when it comes to the, the kind of ancient <laughs> Labour historical <laughs> figures. Um, and I think, the, uh, I, uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe Gate School, you know, he had a kind of a dusky look to him. You know, you'd, you'd kind of go down a dark alley with him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? My uh, current favourite fan theory for how we end the whole Brexit impasse uh, involves making great use of the fact that first past the post can solve everything by giving a majority to a viewpoint that um, with only about 35-40% of the vote uh, rather than needing 52% of the vote to do it. So uh, my current favourite fan theory for how we solve Brexit and never need to talk about it again after the next general election is for Labour to pledge to revoke Article 50 if it gets a majority and for us to sail in on a beautiful majority government with just 33% of the vote and then we never need to talk about Brexit again apart from for the next 50 years but we don't have to do it for the next five. I think to think more existentially also about first past the post is that ultimately it's simply not within the interests of the main political parties to do it certainly Labour and the Conservatives I can't see them throwing their weight behind any kind of proportional representation in, uh, at the moment and if you look at uh, the voting patterns that we're increasingly seeing where the country is voting in a way it seems like they're move, potentially moving outside of the the kind of two-party paradigm is that ultimately it just wouldn't be within their interest and um i just can't see i can't see any moment like we had in 2010 and gaining momentum uh anytime soon and certainly not um and certainly not you know with the parties as they currently are i think potentially there was a point with Corbyn pre-2017 where it could have been on the agenda where 
some people were pessimistic about Labour's ability to ever win a majority, but the, some of those thoughts seem to have been put to bed now um, with Labour's turnout in 2017 and potentially, you know, if we're having an electoral event in the next year or so, which personally feels quite likely, um, you know, f- keeping first past the post would be imperative because as Tyron says, that's how you get a majority government with 36% of the nation's vote. I would think it's quite unlikely that um, we're about to uh, replace first past the post with proportional representation, even though that is something that I'd quite like to see. I think what we have seen from first past the post uh, recently in the current moment is the way in which um, the party's coalitions are um, have been forced together by first past the post and it's become sort of toxic in places and, and the way in which um, the broad church has perhaps become too broad and has created... Um, created these these divisions which which sort of ground everything to a halt. I think some of the arguments um, in favour of first past the post increasingly um, look less solid, particularly um, those that talk about um, the uh, uh, talk about majority governments and the fact that proportional representation always throws up a minority. Um, well, I don't think we're going to get a majority government in the next three elections um they're all, gonna so. be, they're all going to be this year as well so <laughs> tying things back all the way to episode one of the social review podcast we are talking once again about bbc one's years and years which concluded last night the new uh, political drama from russell t davies well not new anymore but ascended uh joining us this week to talk years and years we have hi i'm beth and i'm longsbians or langwesbians on twitter Hi, I'm Kieran, and I'm at Roy Hattersley on Twitter. Spoilers uh, for years and years, obviously, in case that wasn't already apparent. Um, what did you guys all think? Um, I would say it was broadly a good finale. Uh, it was very much like an action thriller. Um, I think it tied up the kind of loose ends relatively well. Um, a bit too on the nose at points, uh, particularly when Vivian Rook Prime Minister Vivian Rook was literally just repeating things that Donald Trump has said um, in kind of sequential order at the press conference. And I'm like, okay, I'm not watching TV. I'm just watching a Trump press conference, but Trump is being played by Emma Thompson. Um, Moments like that, which kind of took me out. But um, other other than that, I I, I was broadly entertained. Um, I thought it was terrible. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, like so much of it didn't make any sense. Like what, what the ending was that love is the answer. Yeah. That's the answer to climate change, fascism, and every it, it it didn't really make any sense. Like there was so much stuff in it that I, I really didn't like. Like the answer was we should record fascism on our phones to defeat it. That's that's the answer. It mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like and it, the whole Vivrook being arrested thing as well. It was it was very much like the Trump fantasy of a higher authority saving them, but this higher authority is the police. The police are going to stop fascism. I, it, I really didn't like it, to be honest. That thing with the police was the bit which really stuck out to me, as if Vivrook wouldn't have, like, that wouldn't be something... Like, she would have taken over the police. There's no independent... There's not going to be an independent judiciary and independent police force at this point. And um, so, I, I, to be honest, I thought the finale was very, very Russell T. Davis. Like, mm. I think he sort of... And I mean that as someone who is a big fan of Russell T. Davis, I sort of feel like he 
left himself a bit too much to do and then papered over the cracks a little bit with like overwrought author's voice speeches where at one point I genuinely thought Jesse Hines was about to um, regenerate. Um, <laughs> so so I, I enjoyed the series overall. I thought the finale was weak in places. Um, I do agree with uh, Kieran completely about the police. I agree with this. Uh, one of the things that really annoyed me was the way that the family were just like um, so forgiving of Stephen Lyons so quickly. He was like the worst. He literally sent someone to a concentration camp, and like the family are like, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> After like two years, two three years, it's like there, no. There's there's an extraordinary amount of like faith and hope placed in the. Um... British population by Russell T Davies. Kieran, you, you spoke of a higher authority. I think in years and years' case, the higher authority is the British people. Um, and Russell T Davies has faith that if we were to um, go out and record concentration camps, let's say concentration camps were actually happening in the UK and Jessica Hines and her mates went there and filmed it all and like broad, broadcast it all over the internet and the TV, um, he has faith that there would be this massive moral outrage. Um, I mean, maybe if it, if it were that kind of big event, then it would be. But like, if it were to happen in real life, um, it would be like videos uploaded to YouTube and shaky cam, debates over their authenticity. I'm not sure that the public would be stirred to action. You know, I mean, I mean, like like Muriel's big speech at the beginning about how uh, everyone was complacent in the rise of the clowns and fascism in, in what was also an extraordinary on-the-nose part of the episode um, was all about how people don't do anything. Um, and I know that that is supposed to spur people on to do something, but, like, w- within the context of, of the fiction, I get that. But, like, um, as a... What is supposed to be a somewhat realistic i say emphasis on somewhat realistic piece of political commentary um i'm not entirely certain that there will be this massive moral outrage i think the concentration camps they exist in australia right now you know they were worse conditions than the erstwhile camps and they exist in america and people have recorded them and nothing's happened it just seemed very i don't know it's very outdated it was it was could have been written in the blair years really i mean my big issue like or the main big issue I have with um, Years and Years is this whole thing of it's painted a dystopian nightmare future which already exists. I mean, there are countries, if you look at China especially, which have concentration camps, there are countries where people can be killed for their sexuality, mainly in Africa and Asia, and there are people who try to cross dangerous waters to uh, escape from a country where they're in danger. And, you know, there are people who get banned from the United States because of, like, the country they're born in. But in years and years, it's all things that happen to white people and mainly to white British people. And it's um, it's a thing which tends to happen with um, dystopian fiction, where what you imagine is this awful scenario. God, imagine if this happened in real life. It does happen. It just happens to people who don't look or sound like you. Also, tying back to the first episode, um, Beth, um, the transhuman slash transgender material um kind of fell by the wayside by the end of it i think um would you agree um what were your thoughts on that specific area of of the show and that the way that transhumanism was initially presented from the first episode which is when um the parents celeste and steven that's their names hacked into bethany's internet history and saw that she was, like, googling things about, like, am I trans, and what does it mean? And, like, 
for like young LGBT people, that's a huge fear because a lot of them they have to go to the internet to like find out about themselves if they don't necessarily have accepting parents. And the fact it's kind of glossed over that they just like looked into their child's internet history. And I know they're, you know, decent and accepting parents, but they could easily not have been, and that's a huge violation of their child's privacy. Um but yeah, like you said in the first episode, there's the um the whole thing about being trans, which in this case is transhuman rather than transgender, being like a a weird, futuristic, scary medical thing. And I think they came back to it in the episode where Bethany's friend gets the dodgy surgery and her eye goes funny. Um, where they said something about, oh, how in the old days this used to be with trans people. But in my experience, I don't know anyone either personally or anecdotally who's had like dodgy, cheap surgery because it's um, quicker and cheaper than actually getting it done, because that surgery is available on the NHS with a massive waiting list, and I've literally never heard of this as a story at all, so I've no idea where RTD got that from. Um, but then in the last episode, they kind of touched about it, touched on it in other episodes, but with um, Lincoln, who was Rosie's child, who we saw being born in the first episode, and has basically, I don't think any lines in the entire series, um, there's the kind of implication that they might be trans because we saw them wearing like a dress and with long hair in the last episode as an adult and then earlier on there was a thing about like oh he's wearing a dress are we okay with that so this is some this is part of the weird 2020s future rather than a thing that literally happens in 2019. William said this in keep saying the first episode in the first episode that um you can't have any kind of commentary on like you know transgenderism unless it's explicitly within the the context of gender um and years and years as commentary wasn't in the context of gender it was taking something um about the cross-pollination of technology and, and and human biology and discussing the privacy issues which arrive from that um the kind of existential question of what it means to be human and putting that within we're not putting it within a gender context trying to like use the gender context to make a joke out of it and then not really properly addressing it afterwards, which just made the first episode's handling of it with the with the presentation of I'm trans, oh, that's fine, no, I'm transhuman, um, seem even more like a joke. I think on the privacy thing, I would have liked to have seen Rossi T. Davies bring that up a bit more because, like, as you said, they looked at her internet history and that's never brought up again. Bethany uh, is able to see any of her family's um, internet histories as well and what they're doing. She sees Stephen um, uh, putting someone in the concentration camp uh, and obviously good that she saw that happening. But, you know, that nonetheless raises the privacy issues um, of like, you know, what can, can you see them at any point during the day? Could you like tap into it while they're sleeping? Um, you know, while they're just like going about their day to day lives, is 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 incredibly dodgy. And and besides, like an initial conversations, um, it, it it was never really addressed again. And I would have liked it to. Um, I'm bummed out about that. There's the whole issue of Vivian Rick wins a majority, and then as soon as she gets arrested, her government just collapses. I mean, like the 330 whatever four star party MPs aren't just going nowhere. They're not going to like. <laughs> by election themselves out of government. There was no real... You, you couldn't tell it was Manchester. It just seemed like nondescript BBC city. The, you know, the, all, the whole family, one voted Labour, um, two of them voted for the fascist party, and the Daniel voted Tory, even though that was the government who deported his partner. 
it really didn't make any sense. And I don't know, it, it just didn't seem like, it just seemed like they said it in Manchester just because there was no real purpose to it. Kieran, um, on the on the voting thing as well, didn't Muriel vote for the um, for Star Party? She did vote for the part uh, for the fascist party, and then she said it's the fault of um, self service checkouts, which yes. made perfect sense. I saw someone on Twitter suggest that that speech was written first, and the whole series was based around it, like leading <laughs> up to it. <laughs> I it was like so definitely agree with that. <laughs> it was so like over very crowbarred in. Like, it, yes. like it's not how normal yes. people talk. It was like what like what you originally said, Joe, about this that it's like a guardian reader's worst nightmare. I thought throughout actually that he sort of had a tendency to sometimes just shove a little um, speech in, which was clearly him speaking through his chosen character at the time, and it's like. If you read Writer's Tale, he talks about how dialogue is two monologues clashing. And um, like maybe it's my fault for reading that book and having all the magic stripped away. But I really the noticed Writer's it Tale in this. Writer's Tale is so good, though. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it is really good. But I, I did sort of notice that a lot in this. Like, it was clearly two Russell T. Speaking Davies Speaking of RTD's early um, work, can we talk about Turn Left thinking. very quickly? Because there's a lot of elements... Which are repeated from that. Um, so if you haven't seen it, it's an episode <laughs> of Doctor Who set in an alternate universe where the Doctor dies really early in the new series and everything goes wrong, basically, because he can't save the world. But, like, there's the scene with everybody having to be evacuated because of radiation and then they have to fill up these houses in the north and there's no space for anyone. That's, like, directly from Turn Left. And there was something else from Turn Left which got repeated in that. Uh, but I can't remember. Oh, it was the the British concentration camps thing because there's a scene in Turn Left where the Italian family gets sent off. Yeah, it was. This series was very much Turn Left. It's, it's one of my I favorite mean, episodes of the new series. I did to be enjoy Turn Left. Yeah, it's good. I feel I've dragged years and years too much. Um, I did, you know, really like the show pretty much. Um, I thought that the cast and the performances have been fantastic. Um, I always enjoy Russell T Davies's writing. Um, I think that kind of his his like pop style um, is always really fun. Um, I just really enjoy political drama, political commentary, even if it's like not always all there as we've established. Um, yeah, no, it's it's been nice. It's been a nice, refreshing uh, change of pace to watch something like this on TV. Um, Joe, what did you think? What did you like? I I really enjoyed the show, particularly the earlier episodes. I think um, it sort of ran out of steam a little bit as it went on i thought russell um toby's performance was a highlight throughout he was really good i think he's good in everything but he was really good um even in the finale i did say it was a very russell t davis davies finale um and it was and it had some proper russell t davies moments like the leaning tower of pisa falling down which i always really enjoy um <laughs> And I think like the cast in general were pretty good, um, and I quite just liked the fact that it was a show that was trying to tackle some of these issues because I think right now is a moment that is ripe for something like this, and I think it was a good effort generally. I think it missed some of the sort of finer details of um, how this kind of thing would happen, but I think that's almost inevitable, um, and. To be honest, I always enjoy any Russell T. Davis Davies show on TV, so that was enjoyable to have. Um, 
So, yeah, like, I, I am down on the finale, and I do think it was messy, um, but, but the performances were so good, and I did have a good time with it for the first, particularly the first half of the season. Like Joe said, the performances were good. I liked the relationship between Muriel and Celeste. It seemed to organically develop over time, and, it, it you know, it didn't seem like, you know, where Stephen just suddenly became this moustache-twirling villain. It, I don't know, I like I liked their relationship in it. I really appreciated that BBC One was willing to commission an original drama that wasn't just a gritty crime drama. Um, like besides um, Doctor Who, pretty much everything they broadcast is gritty crime drama or like period drama. Um, and Years and Years was just a really refreshing break from that. I'd really like them to see. I'd really like them to do more stuff like this. Not necessarily even political drama, but just like you know, drama, comedy, action, comedy. Um, sci-fi like doctor who and like kind of what years and years is uh more diversity in in the stories that they broadcast and thus another episode comes to an end thank you very much to all my co-hosts this week joe eugenie tiran beth and kieran the music as per usual was sweet of her mouth composed by kevin mcleod and licensed under creative Commons. As we said earlier on, this episode was recorded on Tuesday night, so before Wednesday's Tory leadership hustings, which means when we were discussing, we did not know that Rory Stewart would be uh, sent out. Just as we did not know that our extensive discussions on Rory Stewart's candidacy and my own prediction that Rory Stewart would be in the final two would end up having to be cut. As this episode goes out on a Thursday, by the time you listen to it, we will have some idea of who the final two will be, whether it's Boris Johnson and against Michael Gove or against Jeremy Hunt or maybe against Sergei Javid. We're not sure. Probably not, but you know, maybe. And that will lead to a several weeks long campaign to crown the next Tory leader, who will most likely be Boris Johnson, but could possibly still end up being one of the others. We're not too sure. And even though we didn't get to discuss uh, those up-to-date details in this week's episode, you can be assured we have a lot more to say on the future of the Conservative Party. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good rest of your day and goodbye. (laughs) 